This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. We're only too aware of how exhausting the daily drama, trauma of the Trump presidency is, and in a slightly different way, the same is true in the United Kingdom, where the Brexit crisis has led to Boris Johnson now occupying 10 Downing Street, suspending Parliament, and perhaps lying to the Queen, all to push forward a no-deal Brexit by October 31st. As Paul Mason puts it, this is Brexhaustion, and chaos is being normalized, albeit manufactured. The daily ins and outs are more than confusing, especially to outside spectators, but today we hope to shed light on this now constitutional crisis with British journalist and writer Paul Mason and with political economist, journalist, and former SNP, MP George Caravan. We begin with George Caravan, who fills us in on the Scottish case by framing for us just how the UK came to this pass, how Britain has been massively convulsed by the internal divisions rocking the dominant Conservative or Tory party, such that Boris Johnson, now in power, could be seemingly denouncing the very capitalist interests the Conservative Party was supposed to represent. Brexit didn't create these developments, but it is the outward form in which these divisions are being played out. And we'll get both George Caravan and Paul Mason's analyses when Jacobin Radio returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman, and we're going to do Brexit today. It's really overwhelming everything. It's a daily drama. And here in the United States, we're only too aware of how exhausting that daily drama trauma of the Trump presidency is. But now we see in a slightly different way how similar the situation is in the United Kingdom, where the Brexit crisis has led to Boris Johnson now occupying 10 Downing Street, suspending Parliament. He's calling it proroguing. We'll hear about that. Maybe he lied to the Queen. And it's all to push forward a no-deal Brexit by the 31st of October. The daily ins and outs are very confusing, especially for outside spectators. But we're very fortunate today that our guests will be able to hopefully shed light on what this now constitutional crisis looks like, where it came from, who's behind it, and what I guess you could say that the goals are. So having said all of that, I'm very pleased to have George Caravan with us. And he's got the task of clarifying what is seemingly difficult to understand. And George Caravan is a well-known journalist, a radical economist, a longtime political activist in Scotland. He is a member of the Scottish National Party, and we will talk a little bit about that. He's the convener of the SNP's Socialist Caucus. He was a member of the British Parliament from 2015 to 17 and served on the Parliamentary Committee with oversight for the British banking system and government budget. His voting record was consistently brilliant. I looked it up. You can look it up. His most recent book is a survey of the Catalan independence struggle, and we will definitely have him back to talk about that. And he also previously wrote about the coal industry. So he's a political economist with emphasis on energy. Full disclosure, he's an old friend of mine from the days at Glasgow University in radical socialist politics. And so I could think of nobody better than to invite George to shed light for us. George, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you. We met in the 70s when I was at grad school in Glasgow, and presumably you were too. 
Yes, the world, the world was young, but we're still fighting. Now we're still young. Okay. So I started out by saying how, you know, the Brexit crisis is overwhelming everything and it's a daily drama. And you've been doing what we need above all, which is to explain the driving forces within capitalism and behind Brexit, which seem obscure and incomprehensible to most people, especially on this side of the Atlantic. And you explain where it comes from, the politics developing from it. And I think it helps us understand that maybe what we think we know about it isn't what we know about it, but you're going to help us get there. So let me just say then, for those of us, especially on the left, it's hard to see the sources of Brexit, who's behind it in the capitalist class, given what we thought we knew about British capitalism, and your specific account of it in terms of a particular piece of the British capitalist class and your analysis of it within British capitalism. Can you just lay that out for us? And then, and I should ask you also at the end of it to cut to the chase and tell us who and what the Dell Boys are. Right. Make a subject. So everything I'm going to say is is shorthand. Understand that. Right. Now, basically, the, the, the project British capitalism had for the last two generations, really since the, the start of the 60s, it had lost an empire. It had to find new markets in the world. It had to modernize. And so the, the plan of the, of the British ruling class is basically to join Europe, become part of Europe, use that as a, a big market to give economies of scale, mass production, catch up with America and Germany in production techniques, and go on from there. Now, basically, that project has failed. British capitalism, industrial capitalism, uh, has actually gone backward in the last 20, 30 years. We've deindustrialized. Britain has not kept up with Germany, which is the dominant industrial country in, in Europe, not kept up with, with the rest of the world. So this has caused big confusion, big chaos. So the British ruling class bloc, if I can put it that way, the, the very strands of the, of the British ruling class have gone into crisis as to what to do. And so you've essentially got a recomposition uh, of the British ruling bloc. It's just it's the big divisions. I mean, for this is I mean what we're now seeing with Brexit and the crisis in the in the Parliament is the worst political crisis the British ruling class has seen really since perhaps the 1830s. I mean, it's several hundred years. And we've moved on beyond just a normal political crisis. It's not just, you know, political parties falling up and over. We now have a serious crisis of legitimacy of the British ruling class. Essentially what's happened is that one part of of the ruling class that emerged from the days of Margaret Thatcher has decided that it's time to get out of Europe. Now, you really have to understand where they're coming from. This is not some populist uprising from below. It's not, I mean, we had a referendum on whether to stay in or out of the, of the European Union in 2016. And clearly, I mean, the part of the, of the impetus, impetus there at a, at a popular level, resistance to the bureaucracy and resistance to the elites. But there's actually something at a, at a ruling class level going on. And what I think it is, and to try and make it as simple as possible, the, old, the major elements of the old British ruling class who were supposed to run industry, uh, as industry was, was kind of battered by uh, international competition, they went into political and social retreat. Um, Mrs. Thatcher, going back to the 1980s, um, tried to recompose British capitalism by essentially selling off all the state-owned industries. She essentially created a new trading class, a new class, not people who were involved in industry as such, but people who traded assets. 
Uh, and they don't see any need to stay within the European Union. They, they actually, they are buccaneers, they're cowboys, they're financial pirates. And just putting it that way sounds a bit simplistic, but you have to actually look at the scale of the financial assets of this new class. This, I mean, if I could find an analogy, they're like the Russian oligarchs. Mrs. Thatcher created a kind of class like that in the United Kingdom when she sold off cheaply all our industrial assets and, and property. And so this new, this kind of class of, of really traders, uh, financial pirates, they don't want to be in Europe because they don't want to be regulated. When you get down to bottom line, they don't like a kind of social regulation that came out of Europe and came out of the old social democracy and welfare state that was in Britain. Um, they, they're libertarians, which I think American, American audience might understand. Um, they're a very new kind of uh, political ideology in Britain. Essentially, they just want to break up the old system and make a fortune out of it. So that's where we are. Um, okay, so this is excellent, and I just want to recap a little bit. And just to say as well that, you know, the term libertarian was always different between Britain and the U.S., but now it sounds like it's catching up to the U.S. far-right, anarchistic sort of... Absolutely. You know, po- politics rather than left-wing libertarian socialist. But in any case, I just want to recap because what you really have done, George Caravan, and you did in your article very well, is to begin with the nature of British industry and how, in a sense, how backward it was and how in order that the post-war nationalizations were in order to strengthen a kind of feeble British capitalism and it introduced a form, and I'm doing this in shorthand, of state capitalism and that you're arguing that in relation to that, that that created a kind of elite out of the 1970s. But when Thatcher came in, she represented neoliberalism with a particular interpretation that's very well defined in your view. It's not just about austerity, but it's about privatization of public everything. And so you see the privatization of housing, privatization of what rail and and car industry, everything. And but it gave privileges to a new for, a new elite that was formed out of that. And as you've just said, George Caravan, this, uh, the key point is that this new elite in, the, in this class has no interest in developing privatized industry. Um, and you actually say it, that they're only really about plundering the privatized uh, industries from the state that are given to them. So having just said that, let's cut to that last chase, which is um, this particular group that I think you call hedge funders and others um, who are called the Dell Boys. And I have to confess, I had no idea what that meant. Maybe you could just further explain that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a little joke of mine. There's a British situation comedy on television. That's what uh, I thought about it was. Some, okay. some street traders, some market traders, yeah. who, you know, it, it, it's a comedy. But uh, the, the leading character is called Dell. So it's about Dell Boys. It, it, it's a kind of Britishism that really refers to people who are trying to make a fast buck you know, buying cheap and selling, selling as much as they can. Um, and, uh, there's, there's a wing of British financial capitalism. I mean, financial capitalism is going to be elastic terms. The, the big banks, the big investment banks are one side of it. But there's, there's actually a huge amount of, of money involved in a wing of British financial capitalism that's simply involved in hedge funds, in trading, in derivative selling, basically in, in a, you know, a casino economy, gambling. And that sounds superficial, but the, the scale of the amount of money involved that's emerged in the last two decades okay. is extraordinary. And it's this group of hedge fund managers who, are, who are, are put the money up 
for um, Boris Johnson and his campaign to become Prime Minister here, and who's put all the money into the pro-Brexit campaign for the referendum on European membership in 2016. So there's a very clear, articulated group of the British financial class who are manoeuvring to get out of Europe and to mobilize. To, and basically, they want deregulation so they can just run away with their trading. Again, that's very familiar here. Now, I want the next thing for you to explain, and we will get to the SNP and to Labour and what will happen, but what is the relationship between the elite supporters of Brexit and the mass base of Brexit? It seems confusing. We have a similar situation here around Trump, but here you've got the working class and Brexit. And I think in, in your article and in other places, you see that it's not quite as reported, but maybe you could just describe the relationship of the working class to Brexit and in particular the divisions within the working class on this, because it seems that many were for Remain, but an important part voted for Brexit. So explain sure. that. Right. When we had our referendum on European membership, remember this is a proxy for the rights and for deregulation. When we had that referendum in 2016, the vote was 52% to come out of Europe, 48 to stay in. So there was a majority to come out. But when you break down that majority, it is large numbers of declassed people who have been you know, long-term unemployed. I'm not, I'm not being critical. I understand exactly where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. But people who have been forced out of the system, who are desperate, huge numbers of the lower middle class, what we call the petty bourgeois here, small traders, small business people who've really suffered. If you actually look at the, 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 the core working class, since you take the, the people who normally vote Labour, two-thirds of all the people who vote for the Labour Party here, who are the, the traditional working class supporters of the left, they voted to remain in the EU. When you break it down, the, the, the core sections of the working class who are in a job, so wage labourers, they, as skilled workers, they voted to remain in Europe. It is sections of the lower middle class, the petty bourgeois, long-term unemployed people have been forced out of the labor market, and you can understand how desperate they are and how depressed they are, but people have been you know, attracted to the kind of rhetoric of, of, of the right wing, which is blaming immigrants, blaming Europe, kind of, exactly the kind of populist impulse that you, you've seen in Trumpism in America. Mm-hmm. They form the bulk of what we call the, the leave vote, the leaving Europe. But the, the European question is a proxy. It's a proxy for immigra- being anti-immigrant, being racist, blaming, you know, blaming Europe, blaming, blaming the, the bureaucrats. And it's, it is being manipulated by the far right in sections of the, of the financial class here in the UK to mobilize a popular base. And the sad thing is that the, the left has let them get away with this. I mean, there would not have been quite that majority for the leaving the EU side if the left had been properly organized. But we've seen across Western Europe and North America that the, the traditional social democratic left is very weak. The Labour Party split. There's an all kind of core, kind of Stalinist wing of the Labour Party here, which is very social patriotic, which supported leaving the EU. So the problem is that where, where you have got a leadership that's been prepared to stand up to the racists and to stand up to the right, it's actually been able to mobilize support. So in Scotland, for instance, where I'm speaking from, 
one of the, the working class parts of the United Kingdom, in Scotland we had a 60% vote in favour of remaining in Europe, which is a proxy for internationalism, for being anti-racist. And of course uh, Scotland, and especially Glasgow, is completely working class. So that's, Absolutely. yeah, so excellent. Yeah, keep going. Glasgow, the most working class city in the entirety of the UK, had one of the highest votes for remaining in Europe. Not mm. because they, you know, fans of the European Union as such, because it was a kind of proxy for being internationalist, for being anti-racist. So where you had mobilization of the working class, that made a difference in, in large parts of England. Or it didn't work in London. London, just to take London, which is a big proletarian place, even though it's one of the richer parts of the UK, but it's got huge numbers of, you know, of, of young workers. They voted to remain. They voted anti-racist because it's a very mixed community, both of them are workers. So in places where there was leadership or where there was organization, the right was, was pushed back. Okay, so George Caravan, this is all excellent. And I want to get now to, because we'll, we'll be able to get into sort of the politics in Scotland, but given that Brexit has dominated politics in the UK and especially distracted it, as I said earlier, from the class politics that Jeremy Corbyn was beginning to develop in the last election. The question now is how can we get back to that or how does the left get back to that and take it forward? The politics that you're putting forward, both in terms of, I would say, Scotland and Labour, you know, this is the question I want you to look at and, and whether or not there'd have to be some sort of coalition and how you see this in, in the context of the fight over Brexit. In other words, how does the left come back and begin to build, you know, a socialist alternative to what we're seeing right now? And, and where within that do you see the role of the SNP? Sure. There's a big danger at the moment. The other section, traditional section of British capital, particularly around what's left of industrial capital that has its links in the supply chains to the rest of Europe. They've been trying to lead in a, a campaign, stay in Europe, but it's a kind of right-wing campaign to stay in Europe. And the danger for the left in the Scottish National Party and in the, in the radical left and the Labour Party, the danger is we make the argument simply about ab- abstractly staying in Europe or coming out of Europe rather than trying to inject a class uh, argument into that overall political situation. So I, my, my worry is that not enough is being done to say, well, yes, we should stay in Europe because the, the, the right argument for coming out of Europe is a racist one, is an anti-immigrant one. Mm. But if we're going to stay in Europe, we can't stop there. What kind of Europe do we want? It has to be a Europe that's a, a democratic Europe, a popular Europe, a Europe that's anti-austerity. We have to we have to mount a campaign, and that, this is where we've been successful in Scotland, for instance, is that we've tried to polarise everything around, saying there's no point in staying in a Europe that simply wants to do what they did in Greece, which is to impose massive austerity program on the Greek the Greek people and Greek working class. We need a Europe that's people's Europe. So if we simply reduce the debate, which is a danger in the UK at the moment, to stay in Europe, leave Europe, and let's just have another referendum on, and, and so we can get it, as there would be if there was another referendum that would vote to stay in Europe. Where does that get you unless you actually transform Europe? So injecting those kind of class demands into the debate is what's necessary. Now, that in the Labour Party, which is the, the, the mass left-wing party in the UK, there are big splits and divisions. And the right wing of the Labour Party wants simply to make the argument about staying in Europe. And it's using that really as a, as a way of deflecting and trying to, from, from what Corbyn wants to do, Jeremy Corbyn, leader of the Labour Party here, who um, is actually 
uh, advocating a programme which is far to the left of what, what the Labour Party has seen maybe in 50 years. Mm. And what might come if we have a general election here in the near future, which I think we will, there is a probability, well, maybe that's going too far, but certainly there's, there's a strong possibility that we could end up with a minority Labour government supported by the Scottish National Party, which I'm a member of, which is a social democratic party. And that would, if it came about, would actually probably be the most left-wing government that we've seen in Britain since 1945. And, and that would open up the whole question, of not just about staying in Europe, but of actually transforming Europe and transforming British society. Well, I have to say, because I was just in Scotland in the last week in the thick of this crisis, and Boris Johnson was, of course, trying to call a snap election, and he got rebuffed on that. And I hadn't realized, I thought, you know, given what a a mess that the Conservative Party has made of this, that a snap election would bring Labour to power. And of course, it's far more complex than that. And you've just mentioned the divisions within the Labour Party. But of course, Labour lost Scotland and Scotland was its base. And now, you know, way back when I was in Scotland, the SNP, we thought of as a petty bourgeois nationalist formation, but it's now clearly become the left wing party and has the vast majority in Scotland and will continue to do so and will probably wipe out labor or continue to wipe out labor in Scotland. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the SNP and how, I guess, you see its politics in a coalition with labor being able to bring demands that will, you know, fit the working class in both places. Sure. Well, I mean, listeners in North America might you know, they might they might consider something called the Scottish National Party. Sounds a bit right wing. Sounds a bit kind of racist. The SNP is not like the nationalist parties in Eastern Europe, which have become very anti-immigrant, very right wing. The SNP began in between the the, the two big uh, world wars, really as a small kind of um, radical party. But in the last generation or two. Essentially what happened was the SNP began to attract lots of people who were disaffected by traditional Labour Party, which is very right-wing. The SNP began to attract lots of people from the uh, environmental movement. And it it became a kind of home, really, for people who wanted to change, who were against the system and who wanted and saw through self-determination for Scotland the possibility of building, at the very least, a a kind of um, social democratic community, if not something that would go beyond that. And so, I mean, the SNP's position is it's anti-nuclear weapons, it's in favour of public ownership. The Scottish National Party is in government here in what would be the equivalent of America of a state government. It's introduced all sorts of legislation to allow communities to buy the land they live on, farmers to buy the land they live on. We have started to nationalise, taking it back into state ownership uh, assets. Next year, we're setting up a, a public a national investment bank in Scotland to drive the economy. So it's a centre-left social democratic party. We've always held the position at a UK level that we would join in coalition with Labour. Uh, and it's our formal position never, never to um, be in court uh, or vote for um, the right wing or, or, um, or the Conservative Party, the Tory party here. Right. The British crisis is so extreme. Um, that there's been a big upsurge in support for Scottish independence. It's just over the 30% mark at the moment. So if we had another referendum on the independence question, I think probably 
something between 55 and 60% of people would vote to leave the UK. Now, nobody wants to just walk out of the UK and leave the working class and, and people in England to suffer. I mean, it sounds like, you know, in a way, they're talking about Ireland uniting, Scottish going independent, and it leaves England as the rump. And, of course, I know from people there say, oh, we don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. It would hardly help Scotland or Ireland to leave the UK and have a, a right-wing racist entity to, to the south. So nobody wants that, right? Everyone's very well aware of what the issues are. Rather than hold Scotland back, there's the same debate in Ireland over the last 200 years, rather than hold Scotland back, rather than hold the progressive forces back, it would be better here to create an example of what could happen right across not just British Isles, but across Europe, across, you know, across the entire world. So we want to, we've always said we would work very closely progressive forces in England. And, you know, we can't just kind of, I always tell people, just kind of build a wall between Scotland in the north and England south and, and pretend they don't exist. We will have to share, I mean, people, families, you know, aren't, aren't split north and south. I mean, I, my father was from England, my mother was from Ireland. You know, you, we, what we say here in Scotland, it's not where you're born, it's where you fight. This, what we want in Scotland is to create a base for, to demonstrate what uh, a post-capitalist society can look like. And I think if you could do that, far from detracting from the, the, the struggle for progressive reform uh, and against the system in England, it would actually help it to show that, you, that you, you can do something to create a society which is not racist or at least can, is willing to stand up and fight against racism is a better way of, of dealing with what's going on in England than just being stuck in a, in a greater hole where the right wing is winning. That's a very good way to end it. And I want to thank you so much, George Caravan, for really explicating sort of, you know, the various strands that make it all sound so muddled over here. And George is a well-known journalist, a radical economist, a longtime political activist in Scotland. I'm speaking to him in Glasgow today. He is not only a member of the Scottish National Party and the convener of its Socialist Caucus, but he was a member of Parliament and served on the Parliamentary Committee with oversight for the British Banking system. He's written widely in and writes regularly in the press there, and his most recent book is a survey of the Catalan independence struggle. We'll talk about that next time, George, and draw the parallels between what's going on in Catalonia vis-a-vis Spain and Scotland vis-a-vis Great Britain. But I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm Susie Wiseman. Don't go away. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. We're all only too aware, as I said at the outset, about how exhausting the daily trauma and drama of the Trump presidency is. And in a slightly different way, the same is true in the United Kingdom, where the Brexit crisis has led to Boris Johnson now occupying 10 Downing Street, suspending Parliament, what they call proroguing, and perhaps lying to the Queen all to push forward a no-deal Brexit by the 31st of October. And as Paul Mason puts it, this is Brexhaustion, and chaos is being normalized, albeit manufactured. The daily ins and outs are more than confusing, especially to outside spectators, but we have right now with us British journalist Paul Mason to shed light on this now constitutional crisis. Paul, welcome to Jacobin Radio. 
It's great to be on again, Susie. So great to have you. Let me just tell the listeners who you are. Paul is a journalist, a writer, a filmmaker. His articles appear regularly everywhere. New Statesman, Guardian, Le Monde Diplomatique. And he was formerly the economics editor at BBC Newsnight and Channel 4 News. His latest book, which we have not yet talked about here on this show, but will, is called Clear Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human. His earlier books include Post-Capitalism, Why It's Still Kicking Off Everywhere, Meltdown, The End of the Age of Greed, a novel, Rare Earth, and he's also done several plays. And you know, during that time, Paul also had time to do a documentary series called This is a Coup, covering the Greek crisis of 2015. That when we thought Grexit was the issue, not Brexit. You can follow him at Paul Mason News on Twitter. So, Paul, with all of that, so glad to have you back. And I want to just begin with your view of what Boris Johnson and the clique around him are trying to do in economic terms in pushing for this no-deal Brexit, that is, Brexit entirely on his terms with no adjustments to take into account what the EU might want, and I should probably say a lot of people in Britain as well. And you say in The Guardian that the business elite is divided between two groups in the UK, as it is here in the US, and that these two groups are those in favor of globalized free trade and the multilateral global order on the one hand, and on the other, those who want to break the system, the fracking bosses, tax-dodging private equity bosses, and the speculative ends of property and high finance. So which political forces support the first option? And then presumably Johnson and his clique are for the second set. Maybe you could explain a bit more what these groups are and how support for Brexit speaks to their needs. First of all, Susie, I want to say, if you hear crowd noises in the back of me, I picked a very quiet park to do this interview, but a major international cricket match just ended early, <laughs> and the entire crowd is close past me. So if you hear shouts, it's not social unrest, it's just the English celebrating cricket. Okay. Um, so, look, Brexit, let's roll back a bit. Okay. Britain, Britain always had a semi-detached uh, relationship to Europe. They had a deal inside the European Union, giving them budget rebates, giving them opt-outs, etc. So the question isn't Britain deep in the heart of Europe. We were always going to be on the edge of the European Union project. In 2016, our country voted to leave. And it's fair to say that, that what I've kind of described as the liberal uh, sections of business, our equivalent of Wall Street, our equivalent of the big corporations, w- wanted a European orientated leave deal. So what it means is you leave Europe, but you stay close to this 500 million strong single market, which has free movement of individuals, double the size of the United States economy. You stay close to it and you trade with it and you make that your objective. And there's another important thing in geopolitics. You, Britain, would have remained and would remain the key military power in Europe. Now, that was the plan of the Theresa May government. It was the plan of many sort of centrist politicians inside Labour as well. I do a Brexit deal, but keep oriented to Europe. Trump comes to power in 20, <laughs> November 2016, and a new dynamic enters the, the situation. And between then and now, I think it's fair to say we've had the Trump takeover of right-wing politics in Britain. Hmm. So we now get a prime minister... Boris Johnson, elected by only 90,000 people in his own party. So there's no election for him. He just gets chosen. Those people are 97% white. They are overwhelmingly old. They are, many of them have joined 
from our equivalent of the Tea Party. So now Johnson gets chosen. And what's his strategy? His strategy is to become the colony of Trump's America. So this split within the elite, before we go into what the labor movement and the left and the unions and the minorities have done, right. the split within the elite is, is very palpable. And that is what's caused the crisis. Because all the time under Theresa May for three years, Labour and the Liberal Democrat Party and the, the nationalists who in, in Britain tend to be left-wing, progressive, in Scotland and Wales, they managed to defeat Theresa May's bill. But what happened over the summer is that the Conservative Party itself began to split. And Johnson and his kind of core team, who are very, very like the kind of Bannon, kind mm. of you know, alt-right type people, uh, including people who are overtly supportive of the alt-right, his team basically pressed the nuclear button on the, the major party of the British business class, and they've split it. And that's what's plunged us into crisis. Well, this is really interesting, and I just have to say, because it appears that Brexit is harming the British economy and that, you know, you've just explained the sort of faction that is supporting it so strongly. But it means that it just seems like the Tories are acting against the interests that they usually represent in the capitalist class. Well, no, no, think about it, though. Here, as in America, we've, we've seen since 2008 a new phenomenon. If we think about big business, we tend to think about quoted corporations plus Wall Street, major investment banks. And, and those people here, as in the United States, would tend to take a, a fairly centrist view of, what, of what's happening. You know, what's happened since 2008 is that capitalism, I think, has substantially moved towards privatizing itself. That is, instead of IPOs, what we now get are... Uh, companies like Uber, companies like WeWork, which are essentially funded by private capital, which is mobilized beyond the kind of um, corporate system, the, the, the system of quoted companies subject to regulation and scrutiny. So, you know, whether it's the fracking bosses, whether it's the casino bosses, whether it's construction bosses who do deals with unions that may or may not be quite close to organized crime, that kind of person is very clearly there in the center of the Trump administration. And we now find it's very clearly there in, in the hard Brexit project of that section of the British elite. So, yeah, for sure, the <laughs> bosses of Airbus, which is, which is the major rival to Boeing not globally, the bosses of Airbus are, are tearing their hair out. The bosses of Nissan, the bosses of uh, BMW, which is a major German auto manufacturer here in Britain, they hate Brexit, but they're not in control. In a way, they lost control of the party that they were supposed to represent them. And, right. and, and so there's no... Only 23 conservatives have actually split with Johnson. Now, these include, so old style, I would say it's like if Rand Paul, Mitt Romney, and Bart Boehner himself had quit Trump on day one. Uh-huh. Even though on, it's the equivalent of that, but most people have stuck with Johnson. And so we now have this crisis whereby he doesn't have a, in our system, the prime minister has to have a majority in parliament. And he doesn't have one. Uh, and, and so we, do, we have a paralyzed government ruling by fiat. And when I say ruling by fiat, i.e. dictat, that's not the words of a crazed leftist. That is the words of the Speaker of the Parliament. Because <laughs> this is an executive coup uh, where they're ruling by fiat. So oh. we're, we're not in Kansas anymore. We've never been in this situation, probably for 400 years. 
Okay, so I guess this goes some way to explaining the weakness of Johnson's position within Parliament, where he's been defeated repeatedly in the last period in Westminster, losing his majority, failing to get a call to a snap election, expelling 20, this is something I I wish would happen here, expelling 21 of his MPs, and even watching his own brother walk out of his government and seeing the Parliament vote explicitly to prevent him from pushing a no-deal Brexit. And yet it seems... No-deal Brexit or something close to it is still a real possibility for Britain in the not-too-distant future. So I want you to explain for our listeners how that could be. And then also within this, I think in The Guardian, you've written, I think, an excellent piece showing how Boris is sowing chaos in preparation for either simply defying parliamentary legislation or, you know, acting above the law or introducing emergency powers. He's made it really clear that he's going to defy. So what happened is that the MPs took control of Parliament. This is unheard of. It's, 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 it's just an unusual situation. The MPs took control and passed a law saying you must, re- you must request an extension to this deadline, 31st of October. Why are we so obsessed about 31st of October? Because if we crash out without a deal, uh, the Bank of England, our central bank, says within, say, two weeks, our economy will shrink by 8%. Wow. So... So all the small businesses, of course, big businesses can ride out a shrink of 8%. But this is the bigger collapse than, than, than happened after Lehman Brothers. Small businesses, householders would be in real dire straits. And in addition, because the ports will more or less shut down and we're an island, um, the official government prediction is that we see petrol, food and medicine shortages. So, so look, nobody wants this. I don't even believe Johnson wants it, but he's prepared to risk it. Because by being prepared to risk it, what you do is you create an atmosphere of chaos and anxiety into which all these forces that you are well aware of with with Trump in America, all the racists, all the xenophobes, and all really the kind of people who like chaos can step in and have more chaos, including, of course, the there are eight billion pounds worth of short positions that is short selling, that is bets on failure. Uh, that have been accumulated over the last six months where we see the hedge funds and the private equity guys effectively investing in a no-deal um, scenario. So they're investing in the fall of the currency. They're investing in everything in the markets. That, that you can invest in failure in, in any market, and that's what they're doing. So, so that's where we are. Uh, me and, my, and, and many other, not just the left now, I mean, I've been on the streets in some very, very feisty, impromptu demonstrations illegally marching without permission all over London. There's been liberals, there have been Scottish nationalists, there have been the, the classic liberal centrist person who hates Brexit but doesn't like the left. They've all been on the streets. And um, the way to stop him, uh, Parliament is now suspended for five weeks, which right. they can do uh, through a technicality. So we've only got really two weeks at the end of October for Parliament to stop him. And if he doesn't get a deal, and if that deal doesn't, if he gets a deal and the deal doesn't get through, the only way to stop Johnson is to to overthrow him in Parliament, which is a te- again a technical possibility. It can be done in a single day. 
All right, before we go there, I want to just go back just a second, Paul Mason, back to this issue of Boris pushing this through and using it almost in extra legal ways or extra parliamentary ways to try maybe to get a deal where the EU gives him most of what he wants so that he could go then to the electorate with something close to a no-deal Brexit. And it's interesting because if you're reading the Financial Times as we are here, it's not the Financial Times I'm used to reading. And so you get serious newspapers like the FT, Le Monde, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung are all talking about the possibility of some modestly revised deal being struck by Johnson and the EU next month after the prorogue, and then his stampeding it through the British Parliament in that two weeks that you're talking about. Is that possible or probable? And what would that mean for Labour and the left-wing people in trying to respond? And, it, you know, he would say, I guess, I'm delivering Brexit without a chaotic crash out. It's possible that he can do it on two conditions. First of all, that within his own party, there is a hardline group that really wants a clean break, a, a, a kind of Trump, an immediate day one orientation to Trump. And if he does the deal he's trying to do, which just tweaks the, de- the details uh, around, around Northern Ireland, which is particularly problematic because that's where our border with Europe is. Right. Remember, in Northern Ireland, is, Ireland was divided in 1921. The North stayed part of Britain. There's, there's been a, a civil war, more or less, for 30 years in the late 20th century. The peace deal involved an open border. So if they reimpose a border, there are political as well as economic ramifications. But it, his way around that is to impose the border in the Irish Sea, effectively then saying to Ireland that you're on an economic path towards unification, which is a massive thing. Now, if you're a right-wing conservative, you don't like that. Also, there's 10 Northern Irish Protestant uh, pro-unionist MPs, uh, part of this, this ex- extremely right-wing conservative party in Ireland uh, called the DUP. They're right. not going to like it either. So it's not guaranteed he can get this, but if he does... Uh, the other obstacle is in my party inside Labour. Right. So most of Labour MPs, whether they're centrist, whether they're Blairites, whether they're left Corbyn supporters, would vote against that deal. But there's a group of between 16 and 26 Labour MPs that are the classic, you call them in America, blue dog Democrats. I'm really glad that you explained what in Britain is, you know, it's called this Irish backstop, which I could not understand. And, you know, and you've really clarified that. And it just does seem ironically, though, if they move the border to the sea, they've effectively united Ireland, which is, you know, what, what so many hundred years of struggle has been about. Yeah. But they haven't politically, but remember, in the deal, the 1997 agreement, that there is room for a referendum in Ireland eventually to reunite Ireland politically. But that's yet to come. But this tells you how desperate the Conservative right is to do a hard Brexit, a Brexit that finishes things off and goes towards Trump. And In other words, they're prepared to leave the north of Ireland, which, as you say, for 100 years, they militarily occupied. Uh, They're prepared to leave that in Europe in order to, for the rest of Britain to go to a kind of Trump free trade deal in the time available. Okay, so that's, we that's live in crazy times. But let's get back to the Labour Party. And this is really where you began to go. And that is that Brexit's already cut into the traditional party setup in Britain. We're seeing this all over the world, by the way, as you know, in terms of the rejection of neoliberalism and the kind of parties that are emerging from it. But the Tories are divided. 
and labor's divided, as you began to suggest. So I want to hear, because I know you're tweeting about this a lot and writing a lot about this, how labor should respond, and not just labor, but the insurgent and radical movement that developed around Jeremy Corbyn's, I guess we could call it a shock win, in 2015. And to put it slightly differently, Corbyn and the forces behind him seem to have developed impressive momentum around a pretty radical pro-working class program following his showing in the 2015 election. But Brexit seems to have worked brilliantly to break that momentum by dividing and demoralizing the forces that had come together behind Corbyn in 2015. And many have said that he's spent his sort of political capital by trying to bridge the divide within his party. But maybe you could explain this for our listeners. The Corbyn movement was the old left, which was quite economic nationalist, uh, and it was the new left that came out of 2011, the Occupy movement, which is very globalist and very socially liberal. That is the Corbyn movement, and it's substantially backed by trade unions who have a lot of money. In our country, the trade unions tend to be left, but but quite you know focused on economics and and. For example, they won't shed a tear if we lose the free movement of migrants at the moment. A lot of the unions are signed up to the idea of reimposing immigration control, as they say, to keep wages higher. So, so, that, so Corbyn tried, basically, his, his instincts were right. Communications theory tells you that if, if you're losing the argument, change the question. So the, the question was Brexit. Corbyn tried for two years to change the question to what are we going to do about the failing National Health Service, what are we going to do about austerity, what are we going to do about poor housing and wages. But about a year ago, Brexit became the inexorable question. And it, then, then it posed point blank, are you going to oppose it? Are you actually, since Theresa May and the Tories can't do it, are you going to do it for them or are you going to stop them? Right. Corbyn stopped them. He, he did that. The problem is that large parts of his own movement, and let's name, let's be absolutely clear, it's the remnants of British communism. So, uh, you know, we had a small communist party, you did too, you still do, uh, that kind of leftism that looked up to the Soviet Union and now is very supportive of Vladimir Putin, <laughs> they want Brexit. Yeah? Who else wants it? The trade unions can live with Brexit. Uh, some of the trade unions can live with Brexit. And who doesn't want it? All the, many or rather, all the young, vibrant kind of people who would be turning up for Bernie or AOC in the Bronx, that kind of person just doesn't want Brexit. And who else doesn't want it? This huge middle class in Britain, we call them the middle class, but it's, it's workers with salaries, workers who work in the public sector, workers above 30,000 a year, uh, people with an education. They really don't want Brexit. And th- we have had demos, demonstrations, you know, a million strong, time after time. The problem is Corbyn just is losing them. And he's losing them to a, a consolidating new centrist party, which is our Liberal Democrat Party, which conservatives are joining, ex-Labour people are joining. And the danger for him is, unless he commits 100% to the effort to stop Brexit, then come the election, we have the danger of a, basically, a, not a three-way, but a four-way fight, which right. nobody can predict the outcome of. So there'll be Labour, the Conservatives, this enhanced centrist party, the Liberal Democrats, and the Brexit party, which is really, really strong now. It's come from nowhere. It's like as if in America, you, the Tea Party was a party to the right of the GOP. It's tough on everybody. We, we've got, we've, you've got to pick your side and fight. And, 
And yeah, I've been critical of Corbyn for his failure to understand that the future of the left in Britain is an internationalist, globalist, anti-racist left. And if that means having some hard arguments with both working class people and some of his own MPs who don't like migration, this is why I started to talk about the Blue Dog Democrats. We've got exactly that kind of person. And unfortunately, there are enough of them in Parliament to make Brexit happen if they want to. And so this is the, for the next month, people like me, it's about having the arguments with the rank and file and placing pressure on the MP to not go down the route of rubber stamping a, a Brexit deal from Johnson. This is really excellent. And I'm, uh, you know, and I was thinking, as you said it, I spoke to George Caravan, too. And of course, what you saw in Scotland, which is completely working class, Glasgow's the most working class city, is that they supported Remain. They didn't support Leave. And so that kind of bolsters your argument as well. But I wanted to just go to, I think this is hard to understand. And that is that Boris Johnson failed to get a snap election. And the British system is different than ours. So, and most of us thought that given how bad the Tories had messed things up, that if there was an election, Labour would win. But that is not the case right now in terms of polls. But there will be an election, it seems. Everybody's saying maybe it'll happen mid-November. What do you think about that? And I just one final little comment about what you said about who is going off to the Lib Dems. We have this very similar situation in our own Democratic Party between the establishment Dems and the socialists around Bernie AOC and almost everybody else. But go ahead, back to the sort of issue of the snap election. Yeah, okay. So I think there are several outcomes. One is that he gets the deal through, in which case there won't be a snap election. The second thing is if he refuses to obey Parliament and refuses to request an extension, having failed to get a deal. Then he'll be taken to the Supreme Court immediately. He could find himself in breach. Of, he could find himself... It's not People are joking about it, but he could find himself arrested and jailed. Uh, so th- those are the kind of two extremes. But the more likely thing is, if he, if he hangs tough and refuses to, to extend, you know, request an extension, because we've got this hard deadline, then I think Parliament will will vote no confidence in him, and there'll be an attempt to form a caretaker government. Now, that caretaker government will be headed by Corbyn or someone who is not Corbyn. But whoever it's led by, it will have a very limited remit. It will simply request an extension to the deadline and organise an election. That's what I think the central prognosis is. But it all depends on whether or not whether or not the MPs in Parliament just lose their nerve as this kind of um, express train headlights approaches, because it's real, you know, the the 31st of of October is a Lehman Brothers-style event for Britain if we we drop out without a deal. So just finally, Paul, maybe you could just reiterate it, because, you know, others are saying, okay, well, if Labour does win in this period and has a coalition with the SNP, that maybe it can begin to reverse, certainly, the horrendous economic prospects that would exist in, as you're saying, in a Lehman situation. Is that a possibility, or are you, are you really just thinking that there will be a caretaker government and then calling another election? So what, what I want, and what I think is very possible, is that, yeah, we, we overthrow Johnson in late October. There's a caretaker government that necessarily involves the support of the, of the centrist conservatives, the Liberal Democrats, and all the nationalists. So it will really be a cross-class government. Therefore, it can do nothing. <laughs> all it can do is stave off disaster and call an election. Now, why is that important? Because this guy, Johnson, is messing around, as Trump is doing, with the executive power. 
he's used, you know, we've had propaganda videos create, produced by the executive, i.e. by the government with taxpayers' money for Johnson, which is never, most people play by the rules, even in Britain, old imperialist Britain, <laughs> breaking the rules. So we can't, we can't trust Johnson to, to be the, the person in power when the election is called. So I think the, this kind of cross-class technocratic government comes to power, it calls an election. I hope the outcome will be, yeah, a Labour government supported by the, the Scottish Nationalists and the Welsh Nationalists and now one or maybe two Green MPs. At that point, um, yeah, we can, it'll be negotiable. There'll be big negotiations. You probably heard from Caravan what the negotiation might be. But I'm very enthusiastic for that because we are in a culture war. And large parts of the left, even though in Britain, don't accept it. They keep saying, we don't want to fight the culture war. We can only lose it. I, I, my message to them is, we are in it. Um, and just like in the USA, you, you, you have to reach across the divide, try and speak to working class people from these de de devastated areas who are, have illusions in the right. You have to have arguments with them, but you can't do it by ignoring the major issue of the day. The major issue is, are we going to be close to Europe? Or are we going to be close to Trump's America? And let me just finally ask you, because I know you have to go, but you started out by saying something about, you know, the relationship between Trump and Boris Johnson. So could you just finally say, like, the degree to which you think Boris Johnson is depending on support from Trump if it actually succeeds? Well, look, we had Pompeo came over to the United Kingdom and said, before all this, we're going to do things to stop Corbyn winning an election. Uh, let, let's be absolutely clear. These other, uh, the other people who uh, certainly have an interest and the means to stop him uh, are the Saudi Arabian monarchy uh, and the, the, the Likud government in Israel. And, and all these people are playing in you know, the diplomatic geopolitics of Britain right now. So that's the, the headline news. The sub-headline news is all the same people, Bannon, uh, Cambridge Analytica, all the kind of forces that have reformed you know, those, those kind of people, uh, all the think tanks, the Coke-funded think tanks, including crazily some people from the libertarian left here in Britain, mm. the Coke-funded think tanks, um, are all lined up behind the Brexit party, this kind of, you know, ultra-right party, and, and Boris Johnson. So it's not just like we have a parallel with Trump, it's the fact that we have the Trump forces actually playing in, in, in our backyard. Um, and all we have are a few uh, not very well-funded websites and, and, and kind of Twitter accounts. So, you know, we, we, we're, we're, it's an uphill struggle, but we do have the young people. You know, if, if, if for some crazy reason uh, nobody over 65 could vote, Labour would probably win in every seat. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, but uh, young people uh, and minorities need to register to vote, and if we do that, I think we have a chance of winning. It's a very, if the election happens, it will be very volatile and unpredictable. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time, especially after the cricket match outside Paul Mason and being with us today here. Paul's a New Statesman's contributing writer, author, filmmaker, formerly economics editor at Newsnight and then Channel 4 News. And he also covered the global financial crisis, the Arab Spring and the Occupy Movement and the Gaza War. His latest book is Clear, Bright Future, A Radical Defense of the Human Being. We're going to have you back to talk about that, Paul. But thanks so much for joining us today. Today. A pleasure. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. 
Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.